Hey guys, welcome back to the All Lab Podcast. I'm James Marshall and this episode is brought to you by Sujon. Yes, a new partner have come on board, Sujon, the creators of the natural and proven performance supplement, blackcurrant powder. It's huge recovery. I lived off this stuff while playing and I really felt the benefits and they have a very special offer for Waterlad listeners, 25% off their product with the promo code what underscore a underscore lad. So go make the most of that while it's available. Also, all the information is on waterlad.com there as well. And as always, the champion lad, Regan Todd at Todd's Racing, is still supporting this podcast like the champion lad he is. And thanks for all the interest I got on the Waterlad horse. Heaps of people were keen to get involved with that. So really looking forward to that. He'll be flying over top of them in no time. Anyway, I've got an awesome guest for you guys today, so let's crack into it. What a lad. Well, it's not every day you get an Olympic gold medalist on the podcast or a two-time America's Cup winner, but today I'm lucky enough to be joined by a lad who has done both. He's also responsible for the New Zealand sporting moment of the decade after his Olympic gold medal race, which inspired the nation. And going by the amount of requests I've had to get him on the podcast, he is an absolute lad. It is, of course, the man himself, Joseph Sullivan. Welcome, mate. Cheers, mate. <laughs> what an intro. Mate, great to have you on. So what are you up to at the moment? Uh, just settling into life down in Tauranga, um, back in the fire service and yeah, just getting used to family life again. It was quite good. So how long have you been down there? Uh, we moved down just after the, uh, the end of the cup. So around May, um, was living with the in-laws for a while and then, um, finally found ourselves a place while we, we built up in Welcome Bay. So it's all a new challenge. All the different kind of style go from being busy in the America's Cup to being busy doing other stuff. So, yeah. So, talk to me about how that works. Like, so you're you're in Team New Zealand. Uh, you've just won the America's Cup, and then you're what finished work, have you? Yeah. So, yeah, it's it's kind of it's a strange kind of concept, but you go from working six seven days a week for nearly two years um, to your pinnacle event, which is the Cup, and then you. You succeed, which is fantastic, and then you go through the big party and have a great time, and then it's kind of yeah, it's the end, and it's it's pretty abrupt, but it's it's not like we didn't know it's kind of that way, and and I guess with COVID and that we didn't get to have the celebrations around New Zealand that um, we probably normally would have had, um, but yeah, challenging times for everyone, so yeah, we just kind of take it as it comes, mate. That's crazy. So you're you're contracted for like a two year period, are you? And you're working as hard as you can for that time, and then you're done. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah, it's it's sport, I guess, and it, it's that kind of game. And um, with the America's Cup, as as much as the budget's massive, it, it's not so much for the the people. It's more for <laughs> getting the boat on the water and the development and and all the structure and the boat. And yeah, it all it all disappears and dries up pretty quickly. And yeah, as much as the team would love to keep funding everyone, they it just can't be done. So. Yeah, yeah. So to go again, you have to. How does it work for the next America's Cup? Um, yeah, I guess we retrial and and go through that process again. Um, grinders aren't really needed throughout the year, so um, we just kind of go back into our own little world and and keep fit and try to keep on targets and yeah and and put our best foot forward when the day comes if we get asked again. Mate, that's crazy. So how does how does the trial work? 
for a grinder? Is it literally go grind as hard as you can or is there a technique to it? Uh, there wasn't much technique at the end of the day. It's just <laughs> raw mongrel, really. Um, you're just pretty much thrashing yourself to put out the best numbers you can. Yeah. Um, we put you through a series of different tests from sprints to endurance. And I guess we complement each other in different ways throughout the team. So some guys are, are massive sprinters, but and some of us are way better at endurance. So, yeah, I think having that range of, of strengths in the team is, is really important. And are you an endurance man from your rowing background? <laughs> yeah, I'd love to say I was a sprinter and I've done a few sprints in my time, but no, nah, the, the power that some of those boys can put out is just impressive and I don't even have a shit show of, of keeping up with them. So yeah, endurance is more my forte. I'll, I'll start and finish at the, at the same kind of pace that I, I I set off at. So, Mate, if it's anything like you're rowing, you're finishing stronger than you start. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I try to. <laughs> Yeah, finishing a world of hurt. Yeah, shit, mate. That's that's interesting. So, then when's the next um, America's Cup? When's your next sort of trial to go for it? Are you gonna put your name forward again? Yeah, definitely put my name forward again. It's it's a pretty cool experience, and um, to go for the three peak would be pretty special. But at the end of the day, I know it's sport, and always looking for the best new talent. And I'd be stupid to think that I've got a, a seat sewn up. Um, so yeah. I've, I'll start training again soon and try not to get fat like I have a few times. <laughs> and just yeah, be be ready for it if it if it comes and if it doesn't, kind of yeah, it's it's sport at the end of the day. So, do you get any benefit from having experience as a grinder? Uh, I, I guess just understanding what's happening on the boat um, and the different demands that are on you, and then being able to deal with the pressure during a race and, and throughout the race and before the race even. Um, and not psych yourself out or train too hard or, or just you kind of need to have a fine balancing act yeah. as you do in most sports um, to be able to perform on that day and not pretty much not fuck it up, really. <laughs> <laughs> well, you obviously didn't do that because you guys had a very successful campaign, didn't you? Yeah. Well, there were definitely some challenging days where we we thought we were going to go 2-0 and um, we went one all and, and things like that, so... It's also being able to deal with that kind of um, disappointment and just being able to keep keep going and keep fighting right till the end. Yeah. Never giving up. Because you obviously don't come from a sailing background either, do you? So did you learn all this pretty quickly? Uh, yeah, pretty quickly. <laughs> so I, I did sail as a kid. Oh, you I did? I was made to jump in a sunburst with my brother because he was a passionate sailor and I hated it. Like, <laughs> sailing was not my thing. Yeah. <laughs> um, I was a little, I think I was eight when I started and kind of finished when I was 12 Yeah. and then uh, moved up to Picton and got told by the head boy that I was going to start rowing. So yeah, it's kind of weird <laughs> that kicked off. What do you mean you got told you're going to start rowing by the head boy? What did, <laughs> did he literally just come up and tell you? Yeah. So I moved, moved um, town. So moved up from Rangiro to Picton, um, went to the local college and pretty much at the start of the year, they do their cross country um, I started as a little 13-year-old and managed to to win the cross-country. There he is. <laughs> and literally the head boy at the time, Ryan Gordon, um, just came up to me and he was like, you're going to start rowing. And I was like, oh, yeah, that's what it is. All right. <laughs> yeah. didn't, didn't have anything else to do and why not? Give it a go. Did you like it? Did you enjoy it? Yeah, loved it. Um, good bunch of lads, lots of banter. Yeah, it was just good fun. 
I remember turning up for the first day of rowing and the, the coach at the time pulled up in his little Hilux dead pig on the back who was an avid hunter. <laughs> I'm straight from the freezing works and he pulled up and he wound the window down. He's like, you here for the rowing? And I was like, yep, yep, real keen. And he's like, well, you'll be no good. You're too fucking small. <laughs> oh, and then true. he drove off and parked his ute. And I was like, oh, cool. <laughs> this is going to be fun. <laughs> Oh, that's yeah. ruthless. <laughs> yeah. So you were short for a rower, were you? Yeah, well, I still am. Um, I think at the Olympics I was the shortest and lightest wow. heavyweight. Obviously didn't restrict you, though. <laughs> nah, I just had to change our style a bit. We're, we're more like a Jack Russell racing a Labrador. <laughs> taking heaps more steps. <laughs> so what's what was your training like? Because... I remember a couple of rowers at uh, my school at the time, they used to have to get up real early in the morning, train pretty hard, and then head off to school. Is it similar for you? Uh, probably not so much through my school. We had to um, we had a little Mitsubishi van that we had to drive through from Picton through to Blenheim. Yeah. And then we had some sheds that we put in the – well, so the Blenheim Rowing Club was up on stilts pretty much near the river. And then we slapped some tin up in the stilts and we used to put our boats underneath the shed. <laughs> um, so we could only really train in the afternoons. So we just kind of finished school, got together in the van and then gapped it through to Blenheim. And we'd probably do like 20K to 30K a day mm. just in the afternoons as school kids and then do the, the one early morning on a Saturday. But it was never really that early. It was around seven. So, yeah, we had probably a cruisier lifestyle, but... When we did train, we had a good bunch of lads and they just loved to push it yeah. as hard as they could at every moment. Did you know that you were good, like from a young age? Uh, not really. I just kind of was part of the, the crew, um, was just having fun. I think in our first year, we didn't even make an A final. I think we got second in a B final. And we were pretty stoked with that. But then again, we, I guess we, we wanted to win and we were pretty keen, so... We started training even harder, and then the next year picked up, I think, two gold medals, and that kind of just set it off. Caught the bag. Yeah, I guess we got a feel of it after that, that we were we had potential. We definitely weren't the prettiest. We were, our technique was terrible, but <laughs> we just kind of trained harder than everyone else. <laughs> we were just fit. Where did you learn your technique? Because obviously you had to learn your good technique from somewhere. When, when did you start picking up on the technique side of things? Um, I guess it comes a bit natural. And then once you get kind of got into the New Zealand teams and stuff and they start to focus on it a bit more, but I don't think I've ever had the best technique in rowing and you can probably ask a lot of people. Mine's always been terrible, but I've always just made it work for me. <laughs> <laughs> My style is very different to everyone else's and and definitely when I got together with Nathan, that was a, a big thing that we had to overcome. Um kind of matching our styles up together. So you started off as a single scholar, but then you changed to double. So what was the reason behind that transition? <laughs> well, I went to four New Zealand junior trials. I won probably 11 gold medals at New Zealand secondary schools. Wow. And from all those trials, I got selected into the team not once. Far out. Um, they always told me I was too short, not compatible. And it kind of wasn't until I got taken to an ombudsman um, by the Marlborough Association that I actually got a forced entry into the New Zealand junior team. So I actually started in a double with one of my um, schoolmates, Daniel Carina, and we went to World Juniors and we ended up getting uh, a third with only eight weeks training. 
and the the teams that they selected all got second in B finals or were not even in them. So Crazy. It was, it was pretty special. Mate, that's mad. <laughs> yeah. And then from there, when I went into the single, I was actually the reserve for the men's four. So I, I didn't get sent in the single as the single scholar. I got sent as the reserve All right. and then ended up winning the first um, under-23 Worlds. Jeez. So does height, does height make that much of a difference so that they were just, even though you're winning all these races, you weren't they weren't going to pick you? I think the New Zealand team was so focused on the glory of the eights back in back in the day. Yeah. And all those guys were just big guys. And that's kind of what they saw as rowers. Like they looked for people that were well over six foot. They had long legs, long arms. And that was kind of their ultimate. The selectors were the guys from back in the day. Mm. So they were looking for the guys of their own image, I guess. Um, and I just didn't fit that. I was... <laughs> I was short arms, long back. I'm exactly <laughs> what a rower should not be. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm literally the complete opposite of what a rower should be. <laughs> Mate, well, that's so cool, doing it for the little men or the, the short-armed men. Yeah. So cool. So you must, you, your, your mindset must just be next level, the way that you can push yourself and compete with these guys who, are, I guess, have the physical attributes of a rower. I guess I'm just stubborn. Yeah. Like, I was always... Like my, my siblings are all a bit older than me and I hated being left out and I think that was just pretty much it. Every time I got told I couldn't do anything, I was like, nah, fuck that, I'm going to yeah. give it a go. I like to prove a point, I guess, um, and it just kind of worked for me. <laughs> you certainly proved your point. So you talked about your, your and Nathan's relationship um, and how you had to adjust. So what, what was that relationship like initially? Um, it, was, it was pretty good. Like We got along and we'd always raced each other throughout school. Um, Nathan always kicked my ass in the single, but I was luckily a few years after him, so he kind of went and dominated the single, and then I came through the next few years after and, and dominated the single at secondary schools. Um, so we always had competed against each other, like James Hargist in Queen Charlotte College back in the day always had a, a kind of a massive rivalry but we all got along at the same time, which was really cool. So then when we eventually got onto the double together, I was just trying to emulate him and, and get into his style, but I just couldn't match it. He had really long arms and I just had really short arms. And, <laughs> and I guess we just had to figure that out and adapt our style because, yeah, it was impossible to make one of us row like the other. So then we had to just find that medium ground. But I guess it ended up complementing each other. Mm. Like I kind of go batted a hell from the start and then he's really strong through the middle of the race and then I just go a bit nuts at the end and <laughs> we <laughs> we managed to make it work. So you have to keep your own the same tempo the whole race obviously and how important's that? Uh yeah it's pretty pretty important. Like I guess like ultimately in a race you would want to keep the same tempo right from the start to the finish but I've never been able to do that. I yeah. kind of start and then find into a rhythm and then try to hold that as best I can and then uh, get to a point in the race where I know I can finish it off and just kind of go for it. But, yeah. yeah, mostly in rowing it is finding that pace throughout the race and then holding it and then trying to get better at the end. Yeah. Um, but I've always known my the middle of my race has always been pretty average um, and it's always something I've been trying to work on. But, yeah, that's where Nathan was really, really strong, which was cool to be paired up with him mm. and when you talk about that last 500 meters is that 
can technique go out the window or like how much how important is technique still in these moments when you when you are just emptying the tank it's definitely important because if you're not getting the blade in the water at the right spot you're just wasting energy but yeah yeah we we just kind of got into a rhythm that we knew no matter how many 500s we did no matter how screwed we were Mm. we could always kind of do a time right at the end of the race so no matter how buggered we were if we got to that last 1500 meters we knew we could just finish so yeah um yeah it was almost because at that point you just want to keel over you're you're hurting you're struggling and you just want it to end but you know that you've just got to keep doing that next stroke and that next stroke and that next stroke right to the finish and I kind of remember looking back at the race for the first time and all I could see was my head going side to side and I remember trying to think what I was thinking at the time and I was just looking for the finish line because I just wanted it to be over. Yeah. And everyone's like, did you know you won? And if you look at the video, no, I had no idea. I thought we got third. True. Was this in the London Olympic one, the final? Yeah, the London Olympics. I thought we got True. third. Oh, did you? <laughs> yeah. Oh. yeah. Mate, finished the race. I didn't even I didn't even notice that we'd passed everyone. Oh wow. <laughs> you were in hurt locker. Yeah, and it wasn't until we kinda of looked up at the big screen. <laughs> oh, that's crack up, and that's one of the greatest races, obviously, in New Zealand's sporting history. Talk to me about the whole um build up to that race and the lead up to that event. Oh. <laughs> um our build up was pretty poor, eh? Um we kind of <laughs> We had this massive training block in New Zealand and um, we kind of went into it knowing that we were going to be in the Hurt Locker before we got on the plane to go to Europe for the World Cups and, and things like that. Yeah. And we went through all that. And I remembered like a few days before we got on the plane to leave to Europe, the selectors pulled us aside and we're like, what are you guys up to? And we're like, well, what do you mean? And they're like, well, you, you're going like shit. <laughs> like you probably shouldn't even be going. And we're like, fuck, <laughs> like, like, what the hell? This is not what we want to hear just before we get on the plane overseas. And um, so we kind of take that on board and we're a bit, like, we don't know what to do because I guess when you put yourself in that, that position and you, you've been training so hard and you, you make yourself hurting, you're also mentally fatigued and physically fatigued. So mm. when someone comes in and says that to you, you, you just, you take it all the wrong way. Yeah. And we went into our first World Cup that weekend. Like, you go straight into it once you get to Europe. And we went absolute balls. We like, we got second to last in the B final. True. Because it, it had just, it had mentally ruined us yeah. having the selectors come to us and just tell us we were running like shit. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, me and Nathan were trying to figure out, like, why we were running like shit. And we, we kind of just, instead of sticking to what we knew and what we were doing, we just went the complete opposite and started going real terribly. Mm. So, so that was a bit terrifying. We get second to last. We're only just beating like Iran and, and countries that are just not there for rowing. Yeah. And we're freaking out a bit. And then it's quite tense between the two of us for a few months. Um, and we're just trying to figure out what we're going wrong. And when we start doing all the kind of wrong things, we're looking we start changing little things that we didn't even need to look at and training was hard and we were pretty grumpy with each other and the worse we were going, the harder we tried to train. So we were just staying in that mental fatigue yeah. longer and longer and longer. And it wasn't till, I don't know, quite 
late into it. It was the third World Cup before the Olympics and we kind of, we were like, what the hell are we doing? We need to just go back to basics and we we kind of set ourselves up again and yeah, we just went straight back to basics doing the real simple things again that we'd always done and kind of threw out the window of all these changes that we'd made and we, we put all our settings and our boat back to what we had it originally in New Zealand yeah. when we were happy with it and we were going well. And then all of a sudden we kind of clicked again and we ended up getting uh, silver at the World Cup just before the Olympics. Yeah. And we're like, ah, okay, we, we, we do have something here. So what inspired those little changes that you made? Uh, I think we were just looking for things that weren't even there. So I think our coach started coming up with different ideas of what it could be. And yeah, it just wasn't that. And we just started going down the wrong path. Yeah. And I think leading into the Olympics, we were in Belgium for like six weeks before we went to London and it rained every day and we were just, we were just in a bad space. I think, Yeah. Um, I think it was like, there was a few days where me and Nathan didn't even talk to each other <laughs> and we were living in the same room, biking to training together and rowing in the same boat and we just didn't talk. And it was, it was tense. And it was, I guess it was like looking back, it was just stupid, but, when you're in that fatigue and you're in that zone, yeah, like everything's just real niggly, and things that shouldn't get to you just get to you. And um, luckily, we kind of—I don't even know what set it off—but we kind of had an argument one day, and then we just kind of cleared the air. Yeah, and we kind of just were like, what, "What the fuck are we doing? We need to sort this out." Yeah, and we we actually agreed to to go on a road trip together, and we ended up talking to our coach who wasn't happy about it. And we talked to our manager who wasn't really happy about it either, but he kind of agreed with us that we needed to get away. And we, we were in this place that's called Mechelen in Belgium. And um, we told our coaches that we we're going to go to Bruges and Bruges is about an hour's drive from where we were. Yeah. But instead we, we rented a car and started driving to the South of France, which was 1200 Ks away. <laughs> <laughs> and we left it like, we left at five at night on a Friday yeah. and we, we thought we'd drive halfway, find a hotel and then camp there for the night and then do the rest of the trip. Yeah. Started our trip and the motorway was real busy and we were like, what the hell? Found out that it was the first day of summer holidays over in, in <laughs> Belgium and we were literally traveling with thousands of other people through the middle of the night. We couldn't find accommodation anywhere and then we ended up like in the south of France in Marseille. <laughs> we just took turns driving through the night and uh, we got to this McDonald's and it was back in the day when you didn't have data on your phone. Yeah. So we had to find a McDonald's so then we could get Wi-Fi and we just searched like the best beach in Marseille and then we literally drove to this little beach and it was just the best time. We we had some sunshine for the first time in, in months and yeah. we just cruised to the beach, went swimming, got a little yacht, went sailing. Oh. Uh, we took our bikes with us and went bike riding and literally all we needed was this mental break. Mm. Um, and it was just, it was epic. It was just a good time. Had a few beers, had some pizza and just, um, I guess we just connected as mates again instead of just getting niggly at each other. Yeah. Mate, it's living. And then the next day we packed up and drove all the way back to Belgium. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then talking to people, they're like, where have you guys been? And we're like, oh, we went to the south of France. And they're like, fuck off, you did. Like, no one no one believed us. We're completely telling the truth. And everyone's like, nah, whatever. But what a joke. And 
just looking back at things like that now, I, I honestly think if we didn't do that one trip away, yeah, we we wouldn't have got a medal at the Olympics. Um, mm. After that one trip and just that mental break and getting that bit of mental health back and that we were just revived, really. Yeah. Like we were still tired and we were still knackered, but just having that change of pace and that change of scenery, we were, we came back firing and that whole build-up for the next two weeks leading into London, like we were unstoppable and it just gave us so much confidence and and realization that we actually had a shot at maybe getting the medal crazy so when you say that you're you're not getting a break how how intense is that training leading up to that like you obviously can't have oh. a pizza or a few beers um <laughs> most nights Oh, <laughs> <laughs> well, you can definitely have a pizza and a few beers we're just burning calories but i think just being in that lockdown where you're in a in the training camp and i guess lots of sports will understand this like you go overseas and you're so focused on that one event and then if you're having a few bad days, then you try to train the bad things out. So we ended up, like, we were getting worse. So instead of pulling back and giving ourselves a break, we started pushing harder. Yeah. So we went from training six days a week to seven days a week. Yeah. And instead of like, having a break, we were just making ourselves worse and worse and worse. And literally just just stepping back for two days was enough And that kind of just gave us the peace of mind and the confidence and and that connection as a crew again. Um, yeah, to, to just do the basics well that we'd always done. Mate, how cool is that? So then you were feeling pretty confident heading into the Olympics after that two-day uh, two tour. <laughs> yeah, our whole build-up had been terrible. And then two weeks before the Olympics, we just had a, a really good moment and and found the speed that we used to have and that, that feel that we used to have as well. Yeah. Because... In rowing, um, it's literally about feel. Like you, you can row a boat as hard as you want, but if it doesn't feel good and it doesn't move the way you want it to, you're just wasting energy. So yeah, it sounds like it's easy to do, but it's real hard to find that rhythm as a as a combination. Mate, it doesn't sound easy at all. So then, what about your um, qualifying? Did you feel confident heading into those qualifiers? Um, you're never really confident. Like you have a sense that you can achieve, and and like it wasn't like we were the worst rowers in the world. We were the, the world champions currently and we had defended that twice before getting to the Olympics. Yeah. But it was kind of funny, like our build-up was so terrible that it, everyone had ridden us off. Like the media weren't even following us, which was perfect yeah. in, the, in the hindsight. Like we didn't have that pressure that probably Eric and Bondi had or Maha had or Emma had. We were kind of going into it as – Oh, these boys are going like shit. Don't expect much from them. Yeah. So it was it was almost perfect for us. Um, but yeah, for me going into the Olympics, it's the same as World Champs. You're racing the same people, but it's one of those events that everyone can put their best foot forward at the end of the day, and you never know who's going to be on fire um, in those heats and in those semis. So for me, it was quite nerve wracking and having the massive crowds. You go from having like. 5,000 people at a world champs watching to I think there was 60 or 70,000 people watching on the grandstands oh, yeah, yeah. in London and you can hear them from the start line and I remember race like doing our warm-up session going to the start of the heat and it was just the heat and we were racing crews that we knew we could smash but I was so nervous that I ended up like vomiting <laughs> in the boat 
going to the start line and I'd, I'd never done that before ever in my life. Like, yeah. I've been to world champs six times and I've been to everything and just having that nerves that everyone at home's watching, like no one really watches a world champs until the final, but yeah. at the Olympics, everyone's watching the heats, they're watching the semis, they're watching the repetitors, like that expectation and, and that, I guess, got to me, but as soon as I vomited and as soon as I let it out, I was calm again. Good to go. Kind of just, yeah, good to go. And you get that one race under your belt and everything just starts feeling way better mm. and you get that confidence again. So so what were the nerves like for the big final? To be fair, for the final, I was far more calm than I was even going into the heat. Like the heat was more nerve-wracking to me True. than the final. Um, winning the heat and then getting that confidence, then going into the semis, and, and knowing that we still had a bit more power to come. How did you know that, just because you're feeling good? Yeah, I guess um, just leading into it, we we kind of went through that race and um, we kind of let one of the crews get in front of us a bit and then we just pushed up to them and we could hold them and we kind of just knew that we didn't have to exert everything that we had to get to that final. Yeah. And that was a really good feeling, um, knowing that we were slightly holding back ready for the the big race and even leading into London like we knew the lanes were slightly um, I guess biased there was always a slight side wind from one side of the course to the other so if you if you won then you got stuck right in the middle um, but if we didn't win we got stuck slightly to the side so we almost did a slight gamble and we we ended up in the perfect lane for the race. And did you and your plan for that race was it always to start off relatively slow and finish strong, or was that just is that just what happened? <laughs> <laughs> no, that's that's absolutely never our plan. <laughs> um, it, it always looks like it is because it happens to us every time. But every time we race, we try to get out with everyone else and we try to hold in the main group and then give it a good push at the end. But Every race we do, we kind of got known for our sprint finishes um, from the World Champs in 2010. Yeah. So crews knew that they had to get on top of us and try hold us off. Um, so, yeah, we went into that last final knowing that everyone was going to try gap it from us and we just couldn't keep up, literally. Um, we had a really good start and I thought everything was going really well and Nathan was giving me um, real good feedback uh, I don't look out of the boat and he makes all the calls. So going down through the 750s, like, yep, we're right in it. Keep going, keep going. We're going good. We're going good. Through the 1,000, he kept like telling me we're going good. We're right up in the in the in where we need to be. We're going good. Yeah. 1,500, we're going good. And then um, just, yeah, in the last 500, he's just like, yep, go. And we just kind of went. We don't even say anything for that last 500 metres. But looking back at the race now, I – hundred percent no, he was lying to me the whole way. <laughs> we were we were well off the pace. <laughs> we were four seconds behind at the thousand meter mark. Like um yeah. Yeah. What's he told you since the race? Was he always confident or nah? Yeah, I think Nathan always knew we had like we had that potential and he knew other crews had, had gapped it from us. But I guess if you're looking after yourselves as a crew, you're not gonna tell your mate that you you're going really bad. You're just going to keep them positive, and that's what he did. Yeah, which was real, really cool. And it's having that trust in your crew that we're going to back each other up. But 
I just have to believe what he's saying and I don't look out of the boat. I try to stay focused on uh, rhythm and, and keep driving forward and he makes the calls. So I trusted him and he, he did it perfectly. He lied to me when he needed to and he, he got us to the to the 1,500-metre mark where we needed to be and then, yeah, we kind of just unleashed it together and let all the mongrel out. And let it all out and got you the line for third in your mind. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's amazing how happy you can be with a third. Getting a bronze at the Olympics was, like, to me, I was ecstatic. That was incredible. Yeah. And then to look up at the screen, like, to, to see the screen and then realise that we'd actually won was just, I was beside myself. Um, That's so cool. And what's the celebrations like? What's the, how does a rower celebrate a Olympic gold medal? <laughs> um, you'd actually be super disappointed with us, <laughs> with our... Our celebrations the night of our medal. You go from doing the hardest race of your life into literally we did seven hours of media interviews. Oh, true. Like you finish the race, you row to the dais, you do a circuit with the media, you don't even get to warm down or anything like that. Um, you get your medal and then you go to a conference and um, – you have to sit there and chat about the race and then from there you go and talk to more media Yeah, and then you get like 20 minutes to see your family and have a drink and the beer or the, the alcohol just goes straight to your head. <laughs> <laughs> and then you get put in another car and, and driven off to go talk to some more media. Yeah, And then by the end of it, like all I wanted to do was just go home. Yeah, <laughs> We literally just went back to the hotel and, and got a bed and went to bed. Um, I was naked, eh? Yeah. And it's so surreal. Like, for me, like, the Olympics has been 12 years of my life to get that one achievement. And then to have it in your hand and it was there, it almost didn't make sense. It was yeah. it was almost surreal. Um, but even taking that night just to kind of chill on my own and, and realize what had happened was pretty cool. And then after that, it all kind of let loose. <laughs> then it was it was good partying. But yeah, I think the best thing about the Olympics for a rower is it's normally done in the first five days. So you get another eight to ten days of just absolute partying. <laughs> and yeah, it was, it was an experience like no other, I'd have to say that. Like an Olympic gold medal gets you into every party and to every every sport that you want to go watch. That's her thing. Yeah, it was good fun. Did you have a party with any um, any famous names? Um, not really. We we went to a few bars that I'd never even known existed um, <laughs> before in my life. And I guess there were famous people there, but we didn't really get to mingle with them. I remember the one night that I didn't go out, like the one out of all those nights, <laughs> The boys came back and they were like, we were partying with Ludacris. And I was like, what the hell? And he was like, yeah, he was shouting us like champagne with gold flakes in it all night and it was fantastic. And I was like, son of a bitch. <laughs> the one night I didn't go out, I missed out on that. Um, yeah, but it's always classic. My mental state during that was probably, I can't remember half of the partying. We were like, you go from being the fittest you've ever been to drinking every night and it's, it's pretty torturous on the body. <laughs> <laughs> and 
And then what's the what's the crash like when I guess when you're getting back to reality, you're like you said, you've been planning for this for twelve years and it's it's all happened and then you're back to reality, I guess. Yeah, that's it's a strange it's a strange, strange thing, eh? Like and I can't imagine how the, the athletes are feeling after Tokyo. Like you kinda of have this pinnacle event that you've been working your whole life for and then you have all these big parties and that's really cool. And then you come back and you have a few more big parties and everything's sweet. And then a week after that, like you, you, you're pretty much old, like you're old news really. Um, and you're just back to life as normal. And it, it's, it's a strange, strange place. It, it's definitely a hard kind of thing to comprehend. Like you don't have that routine that you had before. Like you would go to training and you would do this and you'd do that all of a sudden that's gone. You don't need to go to training anymore. Mm. Yeah, so it was a different kind of lifestyle. It was it was a strange kind of feeling after that. And I remember we had a meeting with Rowing New Zealand and got told we could have four months off. And I was like, man, that's fantastic. I've, I don't think I've had a break in the last kind of 12 years. Um, so I took that as eagerly as I could. And I remember like a month after that, my coach was like, oh, you're going to start training again. All the boys are going real fast. And I was just like, what the hell? Like, <laughs> you've just been told you could have a four-month break and then all of a sudden you're getting told you have to come back because everyone's going real quick. Yeah. I'm like, mate, it's, it's like the year after the Olympics. No one, no one cares. <laughs> Let us enjoy it. And yeah. little, little did I know that was pretty much the end of my career. Because you didn't go back or did you want to finish? I, I said I was going to have a break and I kind of took the next month or two. So I ended up only having a break for two months, I think. And just from there, it was all kind of over. I I didn't get put in the same boats that I should have been put in and I got told I didn't deserve this. And yeah, my career just kind of disappeared out from under me. It was a strange, strange time. That's crazy. So you, I always thought that you just finished on your own terms, but you were actually... Just weren't selected. <laughs> the current Olympic no, champion I, took a couple of months off, yeah. and now he's not good enough. <laughs> yeah, it was almost like I got I got shunned pretty much, and it was a strange, strange, strange thing. Like we got told that we didn't need to be back on form, and that they would build crews around us and stuff like that. To just being literally axed and and told that you were the reserve or like. Yeah, you didn't deserve to be in this crew. And I'm like, what? This is so messed up. So, definitely went through a massive mental battle through that kind of period of my life. Um, and it kind of just, it, it kind of ruined my passion for the sport. And, and getting told after winning an Olympic gold medal, after winning like six world champs, that I had to be proving myself and, and jumping through these hoops again. Yeah. It just, absolutely messed with me and i yeah i i definitely just lost the passion for it and lost lost the drive to be pushing hard um i kind of always told myself to win an olympic gold medal for rowing you need a good four-year build-up and all of a sudden my first year of those four years was destroyed and then yeah my my passion for the second year just got worse and um all of a sudden they were putting different guys into the double and and telling me I didn't even deserve a shot at trialing for that seat was, yeah, it was mentally, like pretty much mentally fucked me really. Yeah. Um, 
And after that, I was like, nah, screw it. I, I don't need this shit, which is really sad because I, I knew I still had potential and I, I really wanted to back it up. Mm. But just getting getting made to jump through hoops again was just insane. So, yeah, ended up calling it quits. And Mate, that's yeah. absolute madness. Yeah. <laughs> so how did you deal with it mentally? Obviously, it would have been incredibly tough. What, what sort of got you through that? Um, I don't think much got me through that. I was in a pretty dark it was a pretty dark space for quite a long time. I remember, like, when I finally decided to end it with rowing, like, I'd just be in bed, like, half the day. I I just didn't have any reason to get out. I didn't know what I was doing. Mm. I'd kind of thrown all my eggs in one basket. Rowing was everything that I was doing. I, I hadn't really, like, I'd gone to university, but I wasn't really enjoying that, and it wasn't the path I wanted to go down. So when I ended, I didn't really have anything to to drive myself for or, or look towards. Yeah, and it was a weird situation. But I think one of the, the strangest things that kind of happened was I got asked to do an interview for a guy called David, David Slyfield, and he was kind of looking for, I guess, the X factors or, or what makes a good Olympian and, and a medalist and, uh, like, what kind of things that impacted my life that made me be like I was or be mentally resilient for the Olympics or for my sport and um, just had some really good yarns with him. And then at the end of that, he was kind of like, I, I do some work with Team New Zealand and you'd be a really good fit. And I was like, man, that, that'd be mint. Like, yeah, I've never really thought about it, but, but being part of Team New Zealand would be really cool. And this was literally just after Team New Zealand had just had the biggest upset in sporting history um, losing, losing from eight points up to, <laughs> to just losing it. Yeah. <laughs> so it was like the most devastating time watching that. While I'd just been dropped from the New Zealand rowing team to excited to watch the America's Cup and getting up every morning to see them lose day after day <laughs> after being so close to winning it. Yeah. And I was like, man, that's just that's just strange. And then um, nothing kind of happened after that. And then I ended up joining the New Zealand Fire Service and and getting involved in that and kind of found a new passion with that. Yeah. And then randomly one day I just got a phone call from David again and he's like, Team New Zealand are looking for grinders. I put your name down, expect a call. And I was like, ah, holy shit, <laughs> this is awesome. So, yeah, the next day I get a, a call from um, Glenn Ashby and, he was like, come down and have a look and see what you think. And that was kind of the start of a new career. I'd Crazy. gone from the, the bottom of the pits and then all of a sudden I was, yeah, back into it. Far out. What a journey. So had you done any grinding before or was this just completely out of the blue? Just He just basically picked you from your mental toughness. Yeah, it was yeah, pretty much out of the blue. Um yeah, it was kind of like the team's having a massive rebuild. Lots of people left. A few people have stayed, and I think it's a really good time to get involved in the team. The team that's there is really cool, and they're, they're dedicated to it, and they're just passionate about what they're doing, and that just sounded like the dream scenario for me. Mm. I remember he said, like, they've got no money, so don't expect anything, and to me it didn't really matter. I guess it was the challenge that I was up for. Um, yeah, and I was still working in the fire service, and then on my days off, so you do four days on, four days off in the fire service. And yeah, yeah, my days off, I'd go out on the yacht and 
and was learning to sail in the test boat and learning to grind and just doing jobs around the yard and stuff like that. And yeah, kind of learned the dynamic of Team New Zealand, which is literally not, it's not always the most talented person, but it's always the guy that's going to be passionate about it and, and put his best foot forward and, and work for that common goal. And it was just an awesome atmosphere to be part of. Yeah, what is that? What is Team New Zealand like? How does it all work? Who runs the cutter? <laughs> there's there's lots of different bosses, I guess, throughout the whole team. Um, everyone likes to think they're in charge, I think. But, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess for the grinding team, we kind of do our training and then we become the the dog's body of the team. We do all the jobs that no one wants to do. Yeah, um, We, like, get out in the yard emptying containers of of stuff that hasn't been touched since version fives and <laughs> and like gluing gluing down little pet eyes that no one wants to touch and yeah. also painting wall after wall or moving moving this thing to there and then no oh, no it doesn't really work there we'll move that back over there and we were, we were literally just the grunt men of the team um, but it was cool we did all the, the the jobs the boat builders didn't have time to do or or didn't need to waste their time doing menial things, but it created a massive team atmosphere mm. um, where we did the, the shit jobs for them. And then if we went out sailing and, and ruined the boat, then they would work all night to make sure it was ready for us the next day. Yeah. And it was just a wicked team atmosphere. Man, that's cool. And what, what's the grinders training like? You said that you guys would do training in the morning. What What's that involve? Um, it was pretty similar to rowing in many ways. Like, we would start a session and it could be anywhere from an hour to two hours, just endurance or weights or, or speed work. And then literally after that, we go have breakfast and then we're into the day, like helping out around the shed. And then uh, towards the afternoon, we start kind of tiring and, and, and getting worse at doing our jobs. <laughs> we peel, peel back into the gym and, and push ourselves again for the afternoon. Is it all upper body stuff? Mainly, uh, yeah, a lot, of, a lot of upper body. It's it's more full body than you think it would be. Yeah, like it's it's pretty similar to say boxing, where lots of the power comes from the rotation and the twist and and things yeah. like that. So yeah, you do get bigger arms, but your body is also going to be pretty fit mm. to balance it out, really. And how's it compare with the lungs compared to rowing? Uh, it definitely doesn't hurt the lungs as much as rowing. Yeah, because once your arms are once your arms are buggered, there's there's not much you can do about it. They kind <laughs> yeah, of <true. laughs> they they just turn to jelly, and you can be <laughs> as fit as you want to be, but as soon as your arms are gone, yeah. there's nothing. There's just nothing you can do about it. Mm. Like you could keep trying to push, but your arms just won't do it. It's mm. yeah, it's a strange feeling. Like if you go and do a bench press and try to do as many like unlimited bench press, yeah. You, you start off real good and your form's really tight and then as you get like to 10, it gets worse and then as you get to 20, it gets worse and then you get around 30 and you're just, just flopping gone. around. It's just, yeah, there's absolutely nothing you can do about it. Yeah, so when you, when you are training, are you, are you emptying your tank every session or is that what you have to push yourself to or is it a bit more technical than that? No, it definitely was. We always kind of, um, the competitiveness between the team was, I guess, what drove us to the levels that we got to. As much as I hated it, I hate, I hate numbers. I hate reading my data. I just like doing the training and then 
and then going home. Yeah. But yeah, a lot of the team love the data and love that comparison between each other. Yeah. And you can't help but get dragged into it as much <laughs> as I didn't enjoy it. <laughs> so our numbers would always get put up on the board and then it just gets competitive and then you're always trying to outdo each other and you try to figure out ways that you can slightly get better than the other person. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and you're always pushing the limits. Yeah. It's always, yeah, it's good banter. And and what was it like, obviously, the whole uh, America's Cup in, here in New Zealand? What what was that like? Oh, mate, the, the atmosphere for the America's Cup in New Zealand is, is second to none. Uh, we did that whole campaign in Bermuda, and it, as cool as Bermuda was, there just wasn't the crowds and the support that we get when we're in New Zealand. And like, You go to work every day and you go past all these people and no one really notices you. And then all of a sudden you've got a regatta on and all of a sudden there's thousands of people and they're all looking at you. They're checking to see if you're wearing the same uniform as all the crew and like all of a sudden you're an important person. Yeah. <laughs> and like the whole feel of Auckland and New Zealand just changes. The media starts getting behind us instead of writing stories, bagging us out for being money-hungry yeah. sports teams and we're – we're pushing the limits and we're getting special treatment and then all of a sudden everyone's like, oh, Team New Zealand are great. We've always backed them. Like, <laughs> But it's it's such a cool atmosphere and, and to see the excitement from everyone around New Zealand just really helps like, pump you up and, and get you excited about what you're doing and it makes you feel, I guess, pretty special to be part of the team. It, you kind of go through all those hard days where you're like, man, this is just draining and like why are we doing this why are we doing this to ourselves and then you kind of notice everyone around you getting excited and like knowing that people would give anything to be in the position that you're at kind of brings it back into perspective that what you're doing is really cool and I, I'd, get, I'd say like any top sports person must feel like that you have those just absolute slog days where you question why you're doing your sport why you're doing this to yourself yeah but you're literally little kids' dreams. Like you're doing exactly what they want to do when they grow up, or you're you're fulfilling someone's dream lifestyle, mm. and yeah, you know, really makes you you sit back and realize how special it is what you're doing, and how great the opportunity is that you've got to be part of that team and and fighting for the America's Cup. Mate, that's so true. And, and did you feel? like you enjoyed the bigger team environment compared to the rowing or is it hard to compare the two? It's definitely, it's a strange comparison. Like in rowing, you've, you've almost got to be pretty selfish yeah. um, and look after number one or look after your crew because even within rowing New Zealand, it, although you're a big team, like the competitive streak between, like say the men's double versus the men's pair or um, mahe and we're all trying to fight for that top position and you you always race and do these trainings throughout the week where you, you get rated prognostically against the world record for each event and we're all doing different times. So say Emma's in the single, of course the men's double is going to kick her on time. Yeah. But even her handicap compared to her world best time, she can beat us at the end of the day in like a 4K race prognostically. So. Yeah everyone's real competitive for that one prognostic to try to be top of that sheet. And like as much as you're, you're all mates at the end of the day, you get like real competitive and you get a bit sassy against each other. Like you're always trying to one up each other. And I guess that's what makes the team so strong Yeah, is that 
even though we're all in different boats and different categories, we're all fighting to be top of that list. And that compared to America's Cup, I guess, you're all in it together. Well, definitely there with the grinding team, but True. when you walk out into the shed and you see like the 60 boat builders slogging their asses off, yeah. um, working through the night and not seeing their families for ages, and then all the office staff up there designing away and, and having meeting after meeting about development and you kind of realized you're only a small cog in this massive machine mm. that's all working for that common goal. And it kind of, uh, it definitely puts it into perspective that you've, you've just got to do your best. And as, as little as your best seems in the team, it's, it's definitely all going in that right direction to be part of it. And it's a cool atmosphere to be part of a massive, massive team with that one common goal of, of retaining the cup or, or in the first cases of getting the cup back to New Zealand. And then the history behind the cup is insane as well. Yeah. And then winning that cup, how, did, how does that feeling compare? Um, I w- winning the Olympic gold was pretty special to me because that's what I worked 12 years of my life. Yeah. Like I did, dedicated myself to rowing. Yeah. So that was pretty surreal and, and really special for me. But then to win the America's Cup and to go on tour with it afterwards and see the passion from not only the little kids but like the middle-aged men and then the old ladies and everyone remembers Peter Blake and and the fan, like Black Magic and everyone remembers those days and how great it was in like '95 when the Cup first came to New Zealand and that nostalgia. For New Zealand is really special and yeah it just brings all new meaning to to the event and the cup and the history behind it so yeah the America's Cup is just an epic epic thing to win and yeah it's completely satisfying when you got to bring it home yeah um we knew we had a smaller budget than the other teams and we were it was the Kiwi way really like low budget small team like odds stacked against us and then we dominate on a world stage it's it's yeah it's pretty special so cool and then what are the celebrations like after america's cup big team like that geez i'd imagine it would be full on it was messy (laughs) like the night we won anyone that was a kiwi or was related to a kiwi was in that tent with us in bermuda and like everyone was just drinking we were doing bombs off the wharf like how Kiwi could it be? Like everyone was just fully clothed, jumping into the water, and then just drinking all night. Like it was literally the like hundred best New Zealand beer drinking songs till three in the morning, <laughs> and everyone was just losing their voices, and and it was it was a strange moment. Oh, that's so good. Yeah, it was a good party, and I remember coming back to the base in the morning after the big party, and. Of all people that were there, was Trevor Mallard, the Speaker of the House, was in shorts <laughs> and a T-shirt, cleaning up in the tent. And we're like, mate, what are you up to? He's just helping out. It was it was a strange feeling. Like it was just a strange atmosphere. But man, it was cool. So good. And, and the same when we when you won in New Zealand. Um, yeah, definitely. It was almost dis- like not disappointing, but like knowing that we were in the midst of COVID and yeah, everyone was a bit suspect about celebrating, but it kind of, the party was short, but when it was happening, man, it was cool. Like <laughs> when we, we run it and you're out on the water and you have that flotilla of thousands of boats 
and everyone's trying to get closer to the yacht and yeah um I'm pretty sure I saw Tama Edi on a jet ski with the Maori flag and like <laughs> it was just it was so many random things yeah. happening and then to try and get the boat back on the foils and get it back into the bay like back into the the dock to be greeted by crowds of people the ship's horns were blasting as we were coming back in there were thousands of boats trying to keep up with us and and people just absolutely ruining themselves on the person <laughs> on the boat they're like and then you get back to the crowd and like you get back to the wharf and the wharf is packed like there are people everywhere yeah i yeah i've definitely never experienced something that that cool and that special um some kiwis love to hate the america's cup but when you see it out like that and you see everyone that was there and even talking to random people now like one of my crewmates that i've just met down here in tauranga was up there the day we won and and how special it was to them and yeah it was it's a strange thing it, it wasn't just Aucklanders there were people from all over New Zealand and all over the country there celebrating with us and yeah it's it's a surreal thing especially in New Zealand it's yeah I, you definitely can't put words to it yeah so cool and so cool you've got to experience all of those successes but then like like what happened in mm. the rowing you're straight back to reality. I mean, you've won the America's Cup, <laughs> and then you're you're done. Like yeah, like you said, you you become old news pretty quick. Yeah, yeah, it is a strange thing, but I guess for me this time it was pretty cool. I started this last campaign with no children and ended this campaign with two little girls. So yeah, for me just to be able to to go home and spend time with them, and and knowing we didn't have to go back to work or go to another training, that was that was really cool to me. I guess. There's nothing cooler than being your own child's like idol, yeah. And seeing how cool it is, how much they love it, and how much they love having you around, and things like that. So, yeah, yeah it was really, really, yeah, real special. Um, and pretty much after that, we just got a camper and went on a road trip. So, although we didn't get the good parties, it was just epic to be traveling around New Zealand and just having a good time and and really. Yeah, seeing New Zealand for what it is. And then are you back in, in the fire service now? Yeah, so, yeah, big for my job back. And <laughs> um, No, they've been really good. So every time I I get this opportunity with Team New Zealand, they they give me unpaid leave and I get to go off and, and represent, uh, represent New Zealand. So um, when I come back, I, I get slotted back into the cruise and, and kind of get back into that lifestyle. But... For me, I guess the fire service is that same kind of atmosphere. You're you're with a good gr- group of people that are all kind of striving to be the best at what they're doing, and yeah. um, there's always good banter, and we're always trying to solve New Zealand's pro- problems around the, the coffee table <laughs> in the morning. <laughs> yeah, just shit yarns and lots of banter, and just yeah, it's it's like being in a sports team again, and that's really cool. I definitely yeah. enjoy that kind of atmosphere. I don't think I've ever been built to sit behind a desk or do a real paperwork job. So um, something that keeps me active and in the community is always really cool for me. So is that the plans for you going forward? Stick, stay in the service, and when the next America's Cup uh, campaign starts, you'll be looking to push for that? Um, yeah, pretty much. I, I'm one of those people... I just kind of go with the flow. Like, yeah. Um, for me, when I got told to, like, I was in that bad, that bad way after um, 
getting dropped from the team and it was a couple of lads that I'd met from the fire service that pretty much came up to me one day and they were like, look, mate, you're, you're in a bad way. Why don't you join the fire service? It's a really good atmosphere. I think you'll really enjoy it. And I was like, oh, sweet as. Um, so it was kind of like my rowing career. I got told by the head boy to start. Fire service, <laughs> I got told by a bunch of guys to start. Like I've never, as much as I've thought I've had a plan, I've never had a plan. And I just kind of <laughs> roll, with, roll with it. Um, might have been 2019, I randomly got asked to join the New Zealand bobsled team. Oh, true. <laughs> what happened there? Turned it down or? No, no. I flew over to Canada and did a did a stint. Did you? Um, we did the American. The, it was called the America's Cup for for bobsledding over in Calgary. Yeah. A uh, North American Cup, sorry. Um, so flew over, met up with this group, and like literally no budget. Had bought this sled off one of the Canadian teams, and it was one of their old training sleds. <laughs> we literally had no money and no clue what we were doing, and we just turned up and, and, and gave it a nudge. And we weren't even going that bad. We, I think we were in the top seven in this um, this event, really? and then we just had a real bad crash. Oh, true. Uh, and... No one ever tells you in bobsitting that even if you're upside down, you only go a few seconds slower. So no matter whether you start up the right way or you're upside down, you'll still cross the finish line. Wow. So you start, start the race and you can flip completely upside down and you will still cross the finish line, Jeez. but just a few seconds slower. Um, and it, and it hurts. It's, it's not pretty. I think we crashed on the seventh corner of 16 <laughs> and you're still pulling like, Three or four Gs upside down, getting crushed against the ice. Wow, that's brutal. <laughs> Any major injuries from that, or is it just shit scary? <laughs> uh, I think I got a bit of like burns on my shoulder. Yeah. No one ever tells you that ice burns as well. Yeah. The friction when you're upside down, going at 100k an hour, <laughs> Far out. getting pushed against the ice really hurts. So, as much as I enjoyed that, my wife who was heavily pregnant at the time, decided I wasn't doing that sport anymore. And I, I couldn't really disagree with it. <laughs> That's so cool. You've just gone over there, given it a crack. So you'd never done it before. You knew nothing really about it. Or you must have known something to be half decent. No. I literally got sent because Simon Van Velt having got asked to go and he couldn't go because he was getting married. So I was like, eh, I'm on leave. Why not? So... <laughs> Oh, that is good stuff. Mate, you've done it all. Absolute lad. <laughs> Mate, what what a journey. Geez, that's some good stuff in there and real interesting insight into um, life as a rower, especially how it all ended, mate. It's crazy stories there. But as always, yeah. we've gone to our Instagram for some questions. No worries. Fair few have come through for you, the lad that you are. Uh, first question, what's your favourite sport to watch? Favourite sport to watch? Um at the moment, I'm getting into the Formula One. Um, Would you give it a go? I'd love to get in a car. Eh? I, I always saw myself as a car driver, but I'm always too big. <laughs> and I'm nowhere near skilled enough um, to do that. But, yeah, quite enjoy the motorsport. Um, can't can't not watch the rugby, really. Yeah. Getting behind the All Blacks. Yeah, but really anything Olympics, anytime the Olympics come on, doesn't really matter what sport it is. I just get into it. Um, yeah, it's just cool to watch, and it 
gives you all those same kind of feels when you see something succeeding and winning and yeah it gives you that nostalgia and that reminder that what you've done is pretty cool so mate they said you're too too small for rowing but that didn't stop you maybe you could give formula one a go (laughs) (laughs) no way i don't think i'm rich enough to ever get into those things (laughs) yeah true Okay, uh, next question. What are, what's your earliest grinding memory? Uh, earliest grinding memory, I guess um, when I first turned up to Team New Zealand and Glenn Ashby was showing me around the gym and um, it was back in the old Team New Zealand base where the the park hired is now, um, just walking into that shed. And you always kind of think when you look at Team New Zealand that it's a real slick operation and they must have lots of money and all their gear must be state-of-the-art, but then walking into the Team New Zealand shed and it's just a bunch of random machines and <laughs> just bits and pieces everywhere. It's like literally walking into someone's garage with all the different equipment that they've bought off Trade Me <laughs> and just kind of realising that like, it's just the true Kiwi way. Like As much as the team looks like it's built on money, the money is all spent on the development of the boat and yeah. – and the really important things and everything else is just makeshift and, and kind of do the best we can. Crazy, so, eh? Mate? Yeah, it was <laughs> the reality. It was a pretty special moment just realizing how how Kiwi the team was. Yeah. And it wasn't some big enterprise that I thought it was. It was just a bunch of lads and girls doing the best they can to build this extreme boat. Crazy. Good insight. Okay, next question is from a good man called Jared. Uh, How did you develop the sprint of doom? <laughs> um, it was definitely by necessity. We didn't really have a choice. <laughs> um, we were always trailing everyone else. So all we had to do was do our best and just kind of mongrel it to the finish line. So um, I guess it kind of developed in 2010. We were, I think we were in third place or fourth place coming into the finish and we were coming to the finish line and, the crowd was just so massive um, on Lake Karapura and we just got amped up and just started pushing harder and harder and just kept it going right to the end and kind of just developed from there and we kind of got to a point where we realised in the last 500, no matter how screwed we were, we we could always finish on a high. So it was just knowing that it was only 500 metres to go, so <laughs> you could always finish. <laughs> What did someone say? You black out before you die. So. <laughs> <laughs> the motto you've lived your life by. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Definitely. How goes that? Was your fourth split the fastest or were they all pretty similar? They just, it just looked the fastest. I think, to be fair, we were actually like our Olympic race, our splits were pretty much the same the whole way through. Like they were maybe a second and a half faster at the end, but. Everyone else was just getting slower because yeah. they were buggered. <laughs> we were just holding on, really. Yeah. Like everyone had spent their energy at the start of the race trying to keep away from us and we're paying for it at the end. Mate, that's interesting. Okay, next question. If you could have beers with any other sports team in the world, who would it be? I don't know. There's too many people. There'd be, I guess it would be a whole bunch of individual sports people that you kind of get together from like drivers to tennis stars to to the rugby boys as well. Um, yeah. Yeah, I've met a few of the rugby boys and they're always good to have a few beers with. <laughs> it's always just good having banter with people that uh, have common ideas and, and common experiences, I guess. So, 
Yeah. Yeah. But you can't really be getting on the piss with a bunch of good Kiwis. <laughs> yeah. Always good times. Were you at the you were at the um Taz and Marco final last year, were you? Yeah. Oh, I wasn't at the final unfortunately because we were out on the water oh, there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was I was in the in the lead up for it. I was with the boys um when they played Auckland and they actually got thrashed, so I don't think I was the best luck for them. Every time I came and had a chat with them or I talked to them, they always seemed to get beaten. I was like, man, maybe I just need to stay away because every time after that, they end up coming through and winning the, the championship. So, <laughs> yeah. Oh, good times. Okay, next question. Any tips for pushing yourself as far as you do? Um. I guess you just need to find a, a sport that you're passionate about and when you're passionate about something, then you can give it your all. I think that was always the most important thing. If you don't enjoy what you're doing, you're never going to be able to push yourself into that dark space to to do your best. So, yeah, find a sport you're passionate about and just enjoy what you're doing and know at the end of the day you can always recover. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. You're, you're going to pass out before you die. <laughs> yeah, and definitely – Definitely in a race where it's a start and a finish line, the faster and harder you go and the more you push yourself, the quicker it's done. (laughs) That's how I always looked at it. It hurts less if you go harder. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, good stuff. Okay, last question. Uh, Best piece of advice you've ever received? Um, I definitely took it on board, I guess, when I was a junior and I – I got bulleted by this family and a guy called Mike Rogers who, who rode back in the day. Um, and the thing he said to me that really stuck with me is it's as simple as controlling the controllables. And for me that, like without even explaining it, it just made sense to me. Mm. Um, there's so many things that can inhibit what you're doing or change what's happening or or like throw a spanner in the works whether it be weather or another crew or another team doing something different to what you expected. But at the end of the day, all you can do is what you can do. And if you control the things that you you are in control of, then that's, that's all you can do. So, um, yeah, when you're in a race and some team jumps out of the guns, forget about it. If you're not doing your best race, then you're never going to be the fastest anyway. So, why chase someone when it can ruin your whole game plan? Kind of really have to stick to what you're doing and believe in what you're doing and and believe in all the training that you've done. Mate, that is powerful stuff. One of the best pieces of advice <laughs> we've had on the podcast to date. Wow, we love that. No worries. But anyway, mate, really appreciate you coming on the podcast because that has been an absolute unreal yarn, unreal insight into not only rowing but uh, Team New Zealand and the America's Cup, and even even bobsled. Jeez, I had no <laughs> idea about that one. <laughs> yeah, mate, it's awesome to uh, hear a little bit more about your mindset as well. It's incredible to hear how hard you push yourself, and all the best for the future. Good luck with the fire service and your next stint with Team New Zealand, <laughs> mate. You're an absolute lad, so appreciate you coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me. You're a legend. <laughs>